Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash stuff. I'm supposed to be pros here. I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. Golf Exposed Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our ass kicked. Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed Podcast. My name is Jordan Michael Colson, and we're about to be joined by John Brown, CEO and President of Brown Golf Management. And this podcast is sponsored by Golfback, a revenue, data, and marketing platform. And if you are tired of trading tee times or relying on third parties to fill your tee sheet, then it's time to take your golf back. Visit golfbacksolutions.com today speak to our expert team. So welcome back to the Golf Exposed podcast. We are joined, of course, as always, by the president and CEO of Brown Golf Management and Golfback, John Brown. John, welcome home. You spent last week down in Carolina National, your newest acquisition. In my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. Carolina what was it like uh, walking the grounds there and getting to meet the staff? Great to be back here for 2022. Excited to build on uh, this podcast, which we started last year and had a lot of success getting into the nitty gritty of the golf business. Last week, I was down at Carolina National, a club that we purchased on December 17th, and I'm very excited about the property. It's about 30 minutes south of Wilmington, North Carolina, 30 minutes north of North Myrtle Beach. So if you're headed to Myrtle Beach, a great spot to stop off and play 27 holes, Fred Couples design. Oh, that's right. I heard that was a Fred Couples design course. And I heard that you got to uh, hang out with Fred a little bit while you were down there, John. Freddie, what did you think of hanging out with JB? I didn't have, I didn't go out with him much, but I thought he was a good-looking guy and fun to be around. Wow, super interesting. Freddie, thanks for stopping by. You can go now. Uh, okay, John, keep going. Met our team down there and really excited about what we have there. I invite all of you to, to visit them online at carolinanationalgolfclub.com. A very picturesque, beautiful, beautiful course. And it was an honor to produce a video with uh, the general manager, Steve Beecroft, last week. Just beautiful footage of the club. So, Jordan, I got a question for you. I'd love it. Bring it on. So how come it costs so much more to sponsor this podcast this year as opposed <laughs> to last year? Uh, inflation. There's still COVID issues. We, we, we can't get into that without uh, legal counsel present. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. All right. Great. <laughs> it's only going to go up from here. Changing the subject intentionally, the Golden Bear John has spoken. And when he speaks or tweets, uh, the world listens. I wonder if Jack's ever listened to the Golf Exposed podcast. What am I supposed to do with that? I mean, you could... You're here. You could hang out with us for a while and listen to it. I don't Whatever. Do you have somebody better that you'd like to hang out with? Uh, mm-hmm. I had Yvonne Lendl and Billy Scanlon. All right, fine. Anyway, the golf world anyway, definitely still, his name carries a lot of weight. So Jack Nicholas has claimed he believes that the ball is juiced and the ball is being hit entirely too far. Now, we do live in a world of bigger, stronger, faster instant gratification, instant access to information. Does Jack have a point here? And if he does have a point, does this negatively affect the game at a pro or recreational level? Well, there is no doubt equipment advances are helping the game of golf as far as how far the best golfers in the world are hitting the ball. The big putter. Now, we, we have to remember that the best golfers in the world hit the ball at the center of the club face a majority of the time, which obviously they get the greatest benefit from you know the technology that they're using. So... It's amazing the level of skill that these players have and how far they are hitting the ball. I mean, last week at Kapalua in the Tournament of Champions, Cameron Smith shot 30 under par for 72 holes. I mean, a remarkable number. And there was 
multiple golfers that were north of 2,400 pars. So the level of skill they have is amazing. The length they're hitting the ball, I mean, they're all driving the ball and then hitting wedges. And is it impacting the game? Yes, it is. I think it is. Do I necessarily think it's a, a negative? I can't say that it is, but I also, being on the side of operating golf courses, I do worry that we don't have the ability as golf course operators and owners to keep expanding these golf courses. The cost to maintain courses has been going up for years and 8,000 yard golf courses are just not a reality. So do you curb some of the equipment to kind of rein in some of the unbelievable distances players are hitting the ball? Or, or do you live with that? Is that's just part of modern day golf? It, it's a big question. I understand where Jack's coming from. He's the best of all time. Tiger was the best for a 10 year period without a doubt, but Jack's the best in the longevity of his career. And Anytime he speaks about the game of golf, especially your know, tournament-level golf, you have to take that in with some serious consideration. Could it be argued that science is getting better, nutrition is getting better, supplements are getting better, there's more access to data and technique, and people are improving on past generations and what they've achieved? So could that argument be made that perhaps human evolution comes into play here? Without a doubt. I mean, it, it's incredible sort of the level of commitment on all fronts, on dieting, technology, understanding the kinesiology of a, of a body and, and how it works and how you generate power in the golf swing. I mean, there's unbelievable work being done by PGA Tour players. Of course, there's unbelievable money available for the best players in the world. So it makes sense to see this level of commitment. But I think what makes our game beautiful is that, you know, you can watch a PGA Tour event and you will see a hundred and 44 players with 144 different ways to attack the game, different swings, you know, different at high level, at different aspects of the game, whether it's putting or whether it's chipping or whether it's ball striking. And that's really what I think makes the game beautiful is there is no one way to play the game of golf. The game of golf is tee the ball up, get in the hole in the least amount of shots. And there's a lot of ways to do that. If you equate this to the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, Barry Bonds era of baseball when they were you know, hitting 70-plus home runs in a season, business was never better. Revenue was never higher. Now there were some nefarious means perhaps to achieve those results. Let me show you how to do it like a man. I'll step over to the abdominator and I will shout slogans at you. But from a business perspective, does the consumer, the viewer who watches on television, who goes to a course, buys a ticket to a PGA event, do they want to see people crushing it off the tee? Is that something that could boost ratings and potentially boost revenue from a business perspective? I'm sure there's an element of that. I think what they really want to see is drama, you know, down the stretch how everybody reacts to the, you know, with the four to five to six inch space in between their ears. And, you know, how do they deliver in the clutch? And that's where, you know, golf is its best. It's when somebody is trying to chase somebody down at the end of a tournament, they're on a birdie run, and they've got a 20 footer to just take over the tournament and really change momentum or, or stave off maybe something very detrimental. You know, if you have a 10 footer for par and, you know, there's high drama in golf in these tournament events, that is where the real excitement is. I would agree. Last question about this topic. Are you hitting the ball and are you any longer off the tee than you were in prior years? Oh yeah. I'm two to three inches <laughs> without a doubt. The equipment's really helped me. It's showtime. So let's get all right well at the end of the day we are a 
golf business podcast, and that's what we aim to deliver each and every week, John, as we pick your brain. And you come up with a segment today that I think is going to be really beneficial for owner-operators and beyond. It's eight standards for effective golf operations. Yeah, this segment is, is to deliver some ideas down to golf courses about areas to focus on as it relates to golf operations. We're doing this podcast for a few reasons. One of those reasons is to deliver some ideas to course owners and operators on how they can make more money at their operations. Woo! Love that money. These are eight philosophies of Brown Golf that we installed down in our Brown Golf facilities and wanted to review these with you, put them out there publicly, and try to help some operators develop some great strategies for making some more money in, in their golf ops. I'm taking notes, old school pad and paper here, because I know this is going to be important, valuable stuff. Well, item number one is probably not going to be a shock to anyone who's listened to our podcast, but it's T-Sheet Management. And it's really the philosophy on how you create opportunities for revenue at your golf course. Inventory at golf courses, you know, you sell a foursome, you know, every eight to nine minutes. And every time that foursome is not filled, it's lost inventory. It's like throwing a case of milk out every eight or nine minutes, you know. And so we really focus on T-sheet management. And one way we do that is through our T-sheet approach. And we ask questions like, are you offering a double T? What are the intervals for your tee times? Do they make sense? Are they too close together? Might they be impacting pace of play? What is your first tee time of the day? What is your last tee time of the day? Can it be earlier? Can it be later? Can you create more opportunities? Are shotgun starts a positive or negative for your facility? A great question to ask yourself. 30 days out, you know, you need to ask questions like, are the appropriate tee times blocked? Are the blocks in place that should not be in place? Blocks are a big thing that our industry does to kind of organize their tee sheet. And when you're blocking your tee sheet, you're negating the ability, the opportunity for revenue in certain windows. I think we use it as a crutch too often when we're blocking our tee sheets. Do you understand your high demand days? Are starting times set to maximize your earlier premium windows? Very important. And if you're using tiered pricing throughout the day, are the price breaks set for the appropriate time periods? We dynamically price at Brown Golf, but one thing you see is tiered pricing in the golf space. And a lot of times when we analyze a golf operation, those tiered breaks are just, they're not quite at the right time frame to optimize your tee sheet. Two weeks out, we like to have final head counts for all groups. Very important. If you have a group who's going to take up multiple tee times, you need to be ensured that that group is going to show up in total capacity. Otherwise, you're blocking off tee times that you could sell. One week out, look to develop marketing and promotional campaigns to fill slower day parts in your tee sheet. A day out, ensure every tee time is accurate. Print your tee sheet. Make sure that your agronomy department and your food and beverage department understands the daily activities that are happening at your golf operation. And on the day of, for your operation, are you trending ahead or behind your revenues through the entire month? These are all areas that we ask for our operators to analyze as it relates to T-sheet management. That was a lot, Jordan. Do you have any questions? I have just so many questions, but I'm going to try to condense them. So we talk about T-sheet management a lot, and I, I take away a new piece of information every time. But it's very scientific. A lot goes into it. It's not just throwing numbers out. Once this is sort of set in stone and you know what works, you can kind of develop a template, I would think. To some degree, but every operation is different based off the ebbs and flows of their utilization rates, which, you know, so we look at utilization by day part. So if, if we're looking at a tea time that is on a Saturday, we'll look at the 8 to 9 a.m. hour and 72 hours out. If our utilization rates is trending above what it typically is, we start dynamically pricing our T-sheet up. If it's lower, slower usage, we start dynamically pricing down. You will find in multivariable calculus there's often a number of solutions for any given problem. The computer can't detect a pattern, but I'm sure it's code. 
24 hours out, we actually pass uh, our tea time rates through a weather algorithm. So if it's going to be a better day, we start increasing that pricing. If it's going to be kind of a, a day that the weather's not so great, we might start decreasing our pricing. So there is a lot to it, but each golf facility is different, but it's based off utilization rates. Thank you, John Nash. I mean, John Brown. Okay, next question. Have you seen a litany of courses that are approaching this the wrong way, in your opinion, and not going into the depth and detail that you just outlined for us? Absolutely. So uh, not, to, not to be, not to plug, but doesn't golf back do a lot of this automatically? It does. It was built around fundamentals to optimize premium inventory, uh, not necessarily with a focus on driving, filling just your uh, open inventory, but also uh, how do you maximize your premium inventory? And yes, we, we've tried to automate a lot of this thought process into golf back. Number two? Number two. All right. You need to review your programs for discounted tee times. You need to look at your third-party wholesalers. Is the price you're charging helping or hurting your average dollar per round? And where are they booking into your tee sheet? What day part? You need to always analyze your public play versus your member play. There's a right mix at semi-private golf courses. Many golf courses offer either a membership or an annual program uh, to loyal customers. But you need to make sure you have the right mix and that you know that there's an, a balance between maximizing your inventory, but also creating loyalty with a customer segment. You need to definitely analyze player cards, season passes, any third-party wholesalers. And really what it comes down to is you need to understand where these inroads are to your T-sheet and where they're booking in a particular window. If they're discounted times, do you have the ability to move that discounted time into a channel that you control, that you retain 100% of your margins? And many times the answer is yes. When you say channel, what does that actually mean? The way folks have the availability to book a tee time. So anytime someone can secure a tee time in your tee sheet, that to me is a channel. You need to analyze every channel. So in layman's terms, a channel could be a course website where there's a portal to log on, book a tee sheet, in this case, golf back perhaps, or another channel could be them physically walking into the course and booking a time? Correct. Or okay. it could be a third party like a golf now or teeoff.com, or it could be a wholesaler uh, that you have a relationship with and they call in and book their tee times under wholesaler rates, any sort of inroad into your tee sheet. There can, there can be a lot of hands in that pot really quickly. Absolutely. And a pot you need to manage consistently. That's why we're always promoting a direct booking strategy at Golfback because we want to promote the ability for these discounted rounds uh, to come through a channel where we're collecting the customer's data, learning about the customer, and we're able to remarket through automation to those customers. You know, of the two things you said so far, there's only one thing to me that seems so obvious, and that is that you need to have a direct channel. Absolutely. Okay. All right, number three, manage by walking around. Seems very simple, right? But that's how you set the culture with your staff. Our staff members looking at the facility through the guest eyes. Is the parking lot free of trash? Is the service team in position ready? And do they look great? Do they look neat put together? Are golf carts clean and free of debris? A lot of these are basic items, but every golf course needs a checklist. Is the golf department up to speed on what's happening from an agronomic perspective out on the golf course? Do they understand the food and beverage offerings? You know, is there morning coffee available for your guests? If so, where is it? How can your staff educate the customer on, on that first moment of impact? Are the restrooms clean and tidy? Is the range set up for the morning? Are you ready to go? Are you communicating to your customers about 
hours of operation and food and beverage. Maybe you do this via an email before they show up, how they might pay, how they might check in, closing the gap on the comfort level for the customer. All of these things are important in setting the culture to put it down in as simple layman terms as possible. If you don't have an opening checklist and a closing checklist every single night, you're missing an opportunity. It's the little things for sure. All right, keep us going, John. All right, sales culture, number four. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Merchandise product knowledge is definitely something that's important. Is every team member fully capable of answering questions about all merchandise on your floor? Is a club offering demo days or trunk shows or online retail stores? If so, how are you promoting? Do you offer club sales? Are there lessings and fittings available to really promote the ability to really drive club sales? Are there counter items or impulse buy items at checkout? And is your staff willing and able to point those items out and try to increase sales, try to increase the average dollar per round you get from each customer? How about product rotation? Are we moving something every week or is our shop being set it and forget it? Meaning you set your floor and you don't redesign it at all for months on end. You really need to have some product rotation on your floor. What is your process for range balls? Are we able to promote and upsell range balls? How about handicaps? Are we charging for handicaps if we're a daily fee golf course? Can we get more people to, to enroll and have handicaps? These are all different areas to help develop your sales culture. There's all sorts of different areas, but at the end of the day, promoting a sales culture at your facility is vitally important. And the only way to do that is with education, of your team and training of your team. All right, let's move on to number five. Number five is programming, really understanding what you're trying to achieve on different fronts. I'm just gonna give you the different avenues. We won't go into the nitty gritty on each of these unless you have a question, Jordan, but number one, what are we doing with our membership programming and collateral? Number two, what are we doing with our league play and collateral? Number three, what are we doing with our player development programs? How are we taking a new player and really making them someone that will consistently come back to our golf course? Number four, how are we promoting the competition component of golf? Number five, are we developing any key relationships with local fitness centers, area hotels, stay in plays? What are our relationships with the local market around us? Number six, what are we doing from a junior programming standpoint? Are we looking at PGA Junior Leagues? Are we looking at programs like Operation 36, which uh, I know Matt Reagan is going to be a guest on our podcast here in the future. There's all sorts of different areas to impact your golf operation, but you really need to have a strategy for all of them. Membership play, league play, player development programs, how you're going to promote competition, local relationships throughout your market and junior programming. All right, number six, Jordan. You got any questions there? I do have a question about about programming and making relationships with local businesses and gyms. Who, who do you think is the most qualified person at a facility usually to go out and make those relationships? They have to obviously be presentable, speak well, and offer some sort of value to that. Let's just say it's a gym to those gym members. Do you have someone that's designated for that kind of promotional tactic, or is that um, something you kind of weigh and see who you have, and then you decide who goes out? I think the the simple answer a lot of times is our head golf professional will just do that. But I would say find someone with high energy who's excited about your club and the operation that you're building and what you can deliver to the market. That translates during those meetings. So someone who's, you know, high energy, who's outgoing, and uh, who's not afraid to make those connections. It's about relationship building. From someone who works in a retail store and two gyms, I think that is super important. And we have a lot of relationships locally that are very fruitful from all parties. And I think there has to be some reciprocation. They say, your members are going to get this, and you kind of have to offer something before asking for something. Would that be accurate? Yeah, absolutely. 
Number six is pace of play, Jordan. And pace of play is obviously a very hot button issue in our industry. The slower your pace of play, the more negative an experience is. So here's just a couple of items that we focus on. Has your starter informed every group that goes to the first tee what the pace of play expectations are? That's number one, education. Are there rangers present throughout the day? If there are, we absolutely need to make sure they're rangers that are interacting with the customers, not rangers that are just driving around our golf course, not taking pace of play initiatives uh, with the importance that they need. From a course setup perspective, is the course well marked? Do we have signage in the right locations? Are the green speeds fair? Are the tee placements properly placed to ensure that they're not behind you know, overhanging tree limbs or anything that might create a customer to kind of give pause to before they hit their tee sheet? Are locations of holes accessible in flatter areas on busy days? There's nothing wrong with putting your flags right in the middle of the greens on the days you know are going to be high demand days. Nothing wrong at all. And this one's kind of a, a one that gets overlooked, but Whenever your customer is making the turn and they're looking for food and beverage options, do we have the ability to expedite F&B service quickly? And does the customer know how to obtain food and beverage service quickly? All right. So we got six down. We got two left. Quickly about pace of play. Well, your ranger, I think you kind of touched on it. He should be more interactive and try to have a cordial relationship than just be a disciplinarian who's running around saying, you know, hurry the hell up. Exactly. That's okay. part of the experience as well. <laughs> All right. Two down, baby. Here we go. Two, two left. Two left. Customer service. Do we have an engaging outside service staff? They're the first point of contact. Are they smiling? Do they have a process for welcoming the guest outside? Do they have 15 feet away? Are they smiling at the guest? 10 feet away? Are they engaging the guest to some degree? Five feet away? Are they talking to the guests? These are some of the thresholds that you might want to implement to ensure that the outside service staff understands they're really the first point of contact. Once they're in the golf shop, can you build a rapport with the guest? You know, ask them questions like, is this your first time playing? Where are you from? Is this your first time in the area? Once again, while you're in the shop, the points I mentioned earlier, 15 feet away, make eye contact, 10 feet away, acknowledge the guest, and five feet away, start speaking with the guest. Telephone rings, you pick up the telephone. Are you thanking your guests for calling the club and asking them how you can assist them? The most important thing is, are we striving to be very consistent and welcoming day in and day out in all areas of our interactions with guests? Customer service number seven. And number eight, your golf cart fleet management. I know, a very exciting topic, but do you know how many golf carts you have? How much are you paying per car each month? How much might be left on a current lease with your golf carts? Do you have any golf carts down? How many are down? Are you rotating your carts? Have you built a relationship with a local vendor for saving on parts and services for golf carts? When is the last time you checked things like the oil on your gas carts or maybe watered your batteries on your electric carts? There's so much that's important when it comes to maintenance of your golf carts. It's a major asset of a golf facility, and many times it gets overlooked. And fleet management, every golf course needs a fleet management plan. A very robust list, very valuable information. How about we recap the list Let's at recap. a very high level? It's simple. Yes. So we have eight items. Number one, tee sheet management. Number two, review all your discounted tee times and the inroads into your tee sheet. Number three, manage by walking around. Number four, develop a sales culture. Number five, Develop your programming. Number six, pace of play focus. Number seven, a welcoming customer service atmosphere built into your operation. And number eight, golf cart fleet management plan. It's a tough balance to create the most value for your club, but also create the most 
value for the customer or player as well. But I think that's obviously what the challenge is and what the balancing act is. I agree, Jordan. But when you take back and you build a direct booking strategy, you can give great value to the customer. You're just doing it a little bit more on your terms. And there's nothing wrong with giving great value. You want to give great value. You want them to feel very excited like they got a, a tremendous deal. In doing so, there's opportunities where you can give great value that will help you fill your slower parts of your T-sheet. But you will also have those opportunities to dynamically price your T-sheet and really optimize your premium windows as well. All right. So, John, you've heard the expression, obviously, that the customer is always right. I have. Okay. Well, in this case, the player or the member. So... Is the player or the member ever wrong? Ooh, that's a that's a great question. I think understanding all the inputs into a decision sometimes is not going to be viewed through the lens of a customer. And so I would ask you the question, Jordan, if I'm a golf course operator and I deal with hundreds of those scenarios over the course of my lifetime, if my goal is to prove that they're wrong with all the facts in that quick moment or should I take that moment and view it as a challenge and try to make a positive of it? You know, which scenario am I going to be better with long term? It's going to be number two, right? The latter, of course. Now, if if you're being proactive and taking accountability and you follow all the steps that you outlined and all those processes, chances are you're going to probably curtail a lot of that before it even happens. Absolutely. All right. Well, John, that's a great list. We greatly appreciate that. Moving forward, we're going to be looking forward to the 2022 Golf Business Conference. Some of these topics might come up there. We know that there's a lot of key attendees and you are actually on the docket to speak. So can you divulge what your topics are going to be or what your agenda or goals are for this year? Yeah, the Golf Business Conference happens right before the PGA show down in Orlando. And I'm fortunate enough to be asked to speak at that conference this year. And I'll be speaking on a topic of technology, profit, and the future. What you don't know is killing your business. So pretty interesting topic title. A couple of great guests, Tim Ummel, who's with Eyes on Technology, which they do a lot of great things. Golf cart technology to really improve the player experience is going to be joining me. And Jason Pearsall, who's the CEO of Club Caddy Point of Sale Systems, will be joining me. Really what they've asked us to outline, which the Golf Business Conference is hosted by the National Golf Course Owners Association, is what a course might look like in 2030. It was a great exercise to go through. I'm excited to speak on the topic. Can you tell us, without giving away your whole speech, what do you think the biggest change will be in 2030 as opposed to how it looks now? We'll continue to see integrations and automations at every golf course. And I do believe in 2030 that you'll be able to check into a golf course with a kiosk, play an entire round, order your food and beverage, and potentially never interact with another person. I think self-service is the new quality service, and I think that's where we're trending. As long as you make it easy and efficient. I 1000% agree, which I know you do. Speaking of guests, we have several lined up. I'm going to read you a name and I want you to tell me a little bit about what they're about and the names you're going to hear are going to be appearing on this very show very soon. So John, tell me a little bit about Jeff Pilch. Jeff uh, has a very interesting concept for helping golf courses sell merchandise online. He builds out the platform. He handles all of the inventory. All they are assisting with is essentially the branding and logoing of the merchandise that he puts on his platform. And he's there as another solution to grow sales. So it'll be very interesting to have Jeff on the show. He's in the technology space as it relates to golf. And he's a, another finger in being able to grow your merchandise margins uh, without necessarily impacting folks that are, are stepping on your golf shop floor. Tell me a little bit about Mike Zeisman. 
Mike Zeisman operates Golf Genius, which Golf Genius has over 10,000 installs. It's a tournament software platform that does a lot more than just tournament software. Very innovative guy, tech background. Super excited to have Mike. Golf Genius does a great job with their platform, and it'll be uh, exciting to kind of hear what they're doing now and what they see in the future in the, in the business. And last but not least, Matthew Reagan. Matthew Reagan is an operator of a platform called Operation 36, which is a unique way to bring golf to junior golfers and just new golfers in general, actually. It's, it's got a technology component to it, but it's really about taking a golfer from you know brand new novice who does, who's never held a club to being able to go out in your golf course and become a customer in our industry for life. Very excited to have all three of those gentlemen and a few others coming on the show shortly here in upcoming weeks. John, before we ride off into the sunset here, I do want to ask you something that's a little more topical. The NFL season is winding down. I find myself making a lot of irresponsible bets and playing some fantasy football. And I know fantasy golf and sports betting in general has skyrocketed in recent years in popularity. It's becoming more commonplace. It's becoming legal in a lot of states. And I find myself, in terms of football, sometimes rooting for really weird things to happen. It's not even so much about enjoying the game for what it's worth or admiring the technique of the coach or what the quarterback's doing. It's like, oh man, I need this guy to run for four yards and fall down, but not score a touchdown. I know it's not quite the same game. There's obviously positives and negatives to anything. There's exposure, more revenue, more visibility, but ultimately, does betting and fantasy golf have any negative effect on the game? Fantasy golf is a lot different, I think, than fantasy football. I don't necessarily know if the odds align with the actual percentages many weeks that a, that a player has the ability to win. So I feel like you're kind of you're climbing uphill if you're betting on golf. Obviously, we've done golf betting segments on this show. Um, as far as betting on the course and the evolution of the experience and what that might mean for groups and tournaments and even just a match inside your foursome, that adoption is only good for the game. That will keep people entrenched. It'll elevate the experience and more and more modern technology that's easy to use and develop really creative games on course are going to be a big part of our business into the future. There's a couple things golf has going for it. It's an outdoor game. It's a social game. It's a game of fitness. If you add that gaming component to it through betting and having some really unique matches, that could only be a positive. I 1,000% agree with everything that you just said. I'm going to put a few negatives on this. More, more in the mainstream of the PGA, what I'm talking about betting and fantasy golf. I don't want to see if you think I'm off base or if you have any, if you agree with me at all. I think betting on players, for people who are betting, I think it creates a, sort of an aura of selfishness in a way, rooting for the outcome to suit you as opposed to enjoying you know, a player's victory and like relating emotionally. I feel that you build an affinity to personal gain as opposed to cheering for a player and wanting to see them overcome and enjoying their journey, living vicariously through them. And I sort of feel like it can cheapen victory sometimes because you know, if, if a player wins, you're not so much happy for him, you're mad that you lost the bet if you didn't have him or her. So do you think I'm totally off base? Do you think that's looking way too much into it or do you think that could be potentially part of it? I'm going to have to lay on my couch here with a golf therapist to <laughs> absorb all that. You're on to something to some degree in that you start betting on sports. It takes away from maybe the beauty of what might actually be happening. For instance, if someone makes four or five birdies to win their first tournament and it's life-changing, but you got the guy they're up against and 
he loses and you're mad because he lost, but you kind of you didn't take into account sort of what you witnessed from this other player, you know, maybe that there could be a little bit of a disconnect there. What you're going to see is a lot more folks being engaged in the end of tournaments, which maybe wouldn't have that tournament on. So for instance, maybe you're at your home on a Sunday and, and it's kind of a slow Sunday and you pop on the PGA Tour tournament and there's six holes left. And you said, hey, I'm going to bet on you know someone who's two or three shots back and see if they can make a run because that would be pretty exciting towards the end of the event. And all of a sudden I have you engaged as someone who's watching PGA Tour tournament who maybe wouldn't if you didn't have that opportunity. So that benefit probably outweighs you know, the concerns you might have addressed, at least personally for me. And we should also add that you should not bet what you cannot afford to lose and you need to be responsible. And if you have a problem, call that phone number that's on the billboard. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for all that information. It was a really fun show, really informative show, and we look forward to doing a lot more of these in the future. You could definitely visit browngolfmanagement.com to hear more about John, more about the company, and of course, Golfback Solutions, the title sponsor of the show. John, thank you again for another great episode. Thanks, Jordan.